Hello and welcome to the Flying Frisbee podcast with me, Dominic Frisbee, and today's story is called An Eternal Lesson for Investors from an Ill-Fated Silver Mine. And while on holiday in Sark this week, I stumbled across a book in the local post office, Silver Mining on Sark by David Sinnott, which describes an ill-fated mining operation on the island between 1836 and 1847. And I love this about books, particularly weird old books. Books are distilled knowledge. And sometimes you'll just stumble across stuff in a book that isn't on the internet. It hasn't been uploaded and you'll find these weird niche things, occasionally brilliant, occasionally awful. But anyway, this, this was a cracker. Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose, runs the old French saying, and it applies to mining, it seems, as much as anything. We don't use canaries anymore. Mines are powered by diesel and electricity, not horse, donkey or manpower. Helmets have got torches on instead of candles. There's underground lighting. A higher premium is placed on human life than it was in the early 1800s when workers were much more disposable, let's say. But the game is exactly the same. You are trying to extract metal from rock and sell it at a higher price than you mine it for. And the tricks of the trade, the scams are the same too, as is human psychology. So let me tell you the story of Sark's silver mine. Sark, by the way, is a tiny island about two square miles located between Guernsey and Jersey in the English Channel, much closer to France, uh, which is about 25 miles away, than England, which is over 200 miles away. There's somebody seems to be banging in the distance, so if the microphone's picking that up, I apologise. And remains show that the island was inhabited in Neolithic times, but for many periods in the island's history, there was nobody there at all. Today it has about 500 residents, there are famously no cars on the island, only tractors, horses, bikes and mobility scooters, and no streetlights, and so you have probably the best view of the night sky in all of Europe. It's famous for its harsh, windswept landscape with sheer cliffs and jagged rocks. It still has a feudal lord, who by the way I beat at table tennis, and its own parliament, and in the early 1800s, the language spoken there, the Patois, was similar to Old Frankish, very different from the Cornish spoken by the miners who would soon settle there. The Cornish spoken by the miners, by the way, was very different from the English that would be spoken in London. Uh, yeah, there's somebody putting up a fence outside, so apologies. Um, if you take a boat trip round the island, there are visible copper salts leaching in the cliffs, which no doubt explains its appeal during the Bronze Age, the appeal of the island. And it was these visible salts that attracted prospectors to the island in the early part of the um, 19th century. Now, the Cornish at the time had one of the most evolved mining cultures in the world, which also dated back to the Bronze Age, and they were operating mines as far afield as Argentina, North America, especially California, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Virginia. In Chesapeake, they even have a Cornish accent. And uh, South Africa, where they operated the world's largest copper mine at Okiep, 300 miles north of Cape Town. They were in New Zealand as well. 
Even the great Mark Twain, he of a mine is a hole in the ground with a liar standing next to it fame, was of Cornish descent. In 1835, funded by an English mining adventurer called John Hunt, adventurer is a far better term than entrepreneur, is it not? A team of Cornish miners arrived in the island to mine the copper and they found lead and silver nearby quite soon after and they began mining that and so was Sark's Hope Mine built. They should have called it the No Hope Mine. What was prospering in 1839 went badly wrong. How? In the age-old tradition of mining, management misled the shareholders. When the ore body was clearly not enough to support the mine, the mine captain deceived, where possible, to keep the game going. Management had a vested interest in doing so, even if it was no longer profitable. Their salaries depended on it. There were also some 200 Cornish workers who were employed by the mine, together with their wives, who may also have been employees, ball maidens they were known as, and their families. And Sark's population soared to 790, the highest ever recorded. And management no doubt felt loyalty to its people, as well as their own salaries. And as they chased ore, expanding the mine with the promise of finding more silver, The mine extended some 800 yards, with tunnels 300 feet out to sea, uh, where they were mining 20 fathoms, 120 feet below sea level. And you can imagine, I guess you could have heard the noise in those tunnels when there's a storm blowing overhead, waves crashing and all the rest of it. Must have been quite something. Maybe they couldn't hear it in the tunnels. And they actually had quite an ingenious device in play, should the mine ever flood, that would save the mine and some of its occupants. General equipment could be brought in from Guernsey, but the speciality stuff, the specialist stuff, had to be acquired from Cornish suppliers, with the effect that Guernsey and London shareholders' capital went to the picks and shovels suppliers in Cornwall. Management would go on jollies to Guernsey for their count-house dinners, a tradition they'd brought over from Cornwall, dinners which acquired legendary status for their extravagance, where news of the mine would be delivered to shareholders. The Count House, by the way, is the mine office where the managers worked and the miners were paid. You'll still find pubs in Cornwall called the Count House. And mining has a long and rich history of this. I remember the boom of the noughties and you would see management of non-producing exploration companies living it up at the Savoy, driving Ferraris to expensive lunches and dinners. Who's paying for it all? But the cost of the dinners would be buried in the company accounts on another venture, one out-adventurer, which is what they would call investors or shareholders, is said to have asked why he couldn't see the spirits from a recent Count House dinner in the accounts, and the bursar, what we might today call the CFO, declared that the spirits are there, you just can't see them. There was a long Cornish habit of swindling out-adventurers from London. It seems they took the habit with them to Sark. Of course, sometimes mines work and everybody makes a lot of money. And that's the lure that draws people in and will always draw people in. It's only when the mine doesn't work that things go belly up and scams start to happen. None of this is to say that working the mines was easy. Many lost their lives to it. 20% of Cornish miners were killed or incapacitated before they reached 40. So Cornwall became known as the County of Widows. And if you saw someone's window open in Cornwall in winter, it's likely that the occupier was a former miner gasping for air as his lungs were so damaged from breathing in the dust of thousands of gunpowder explosions. But as things went wrong in the early 1940s, the seigneur of Sark, the feudal lord, 
borrowed money to try and keep the business going. Uh, no doubt induced by the incentive of riches. But in 1847, the business finally collapsed. The Seigneur lost a lot more than his shirt. He died a year later, crushed with debt. And his creditor, one Marie Collins, foreclosed on the debts and his son lost the fiefdom to her. And that son, Peter Carey, would become would become a low-life scamp, to quote the probably biased archive of the seigneurie. Sartre got a new seigneur, a dame actually, and that same family retains the fiefdom to this day. The mine has never been reworked or re-explored. Now it's all grown over. Irony of ironies, in Guernsey there is still a record of all the money paid out to shareholders, but those that recorded the company's income have been lost. Still, the episode had some long-term effects on the island. For a period, there was an influx of capital, prosperity with the boom, then depression with the bust. It brought Methodism to the island from Cornwall, a school for girls and a doctor. Um, it kick-started the tourist industry, uh, and the area around the mine, previously just hill, heath, began to be farmed for the first time. The English language came to the island. And the houses that were built for the mine workers housed the Sarkees for many decades to come, apparently because they weren't built by the Cornish but by the locals, so they were built with more longevity in mind. Now here's a nice quote. This comes from a local historian, Edgar Barnes, who wrote this in 1890. In this spot centred anticipations never to be fulfilled and hopes doomed to dire disappointment. At the bottom of the mine lie the buried, lie buried the fortunes of an ancient family, the hard-earned savings of people who had little to spare and the wasted energies of hundreds of stalwart men who had hoped to share in the wealth which their efforts were to have won. And now all this has vanished as if it had never been, save that there still remain ghostly monuments of failure, the shafts and the chimneys and the ruins of the various offices. This is a story that has played out many times through the history of mining and still plays out today. Investors, caveat emptor. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this uh, that little story. Uh, beware investing in silver mines. Don't use leverage. That's the model of the mo uh, the motto of the story. And if you're in interested in buying actual silver rather than uh, uh, mining companies, there's a link to a bullion dealer I like at the end of the article, the Pure Gold Company. And one last thing: if you are in or close to London towards the end of the month, towards the end of September, that is, I'll be performing my lecture with funny bits, how heavy, about the history of weights and measures at the Museum of Comedy in London on September the 28th and the 29th. And there's a link uh, from where you can buy tickets um, at the end of the article. Thanks very much. Cheerio.